This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, November 3rd. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Telluride honors Dia de los Muertos with Community Ofrenda, Ski Swap returns, breaking down the artistic process at AHA, and a mountain weather forecast. Across the world, communities have been celebrating Dia de los Muertos, a time to honor and remember those we've lost. This year, the Wilkinson Public Library has once again created an ofrenda, an altar part of those celebrations. Claudia Garcia Curcio works at the library. She spoke with KOTO News to share her memories of Dia de los Muertos and the importance of the ofrenda. We have a, this perception of like when someone passes, it is sad, but we try to kind of think of the positive memories we've had and we kind of embrace death, in my opinion, then more it more. That's how we kind of grew up, you know, like in Mexico, it it is sad. I don't want to take away from the sadness, but we really like to focus on kind of like how do we celebrate them even after they've passed. And I think if you look at our last names, we keep our mom's maiden name. So we don't really get rid of a lot of things. We like to add on to things. So when someone passes, it's like, oh, this was abuelita, so let's keep it. Or this was my abuelo. we just like, we hold on to memories and those happy memories are way better than the negative memories, you know? I don't know. I think as a child, I never really thought about it, but that's been my process. Even when my grandmother passed away, it took me a lot of grief because I wasn't really, I was sad, but it's life. I definitely miss her, but I have, I have to think of like the good memories I had with her. Her picture's up there, and so I see her and it makes me smile. I still talk to her, even if it's like journaling or out loud. And the ofrenda allows me to have those conversations at home with them. It's an altar. You set it up any way you want. Um, How I would set it up, like marigolds, we put marigolds. Um, Those are the ones that are grown. It's like the the dead flower um, is what I've heard. And also like the monarch butterfly is also represent, represents life. Um, And then you put pictures of your loved ones that have passed um, and then their favorite meal or whatever little knickknack or memory you have of them you set there and for each day that goes from the 28th you light a candle you put a specific like fruit or white flower so every day is pretty specific to during the celebration of day of the dead A lot of people have been coming and be like, can I put my photo up? And I was like, of course. We laminated a lot of them to kind of keep them in storage and then bring them back the next year. Um, And we're losing space, which I'm thinking like, maybe we should pick a bigger spot or figure out how to make more steps, you know, to, to the ofrenda. There's a lot of papel picado, which is like the um, tissue paper made in like two little little flags. Um, there's marigolds. We made marigolds out of tissue paper. There's sugar skulls, calaveras, catrinas, 
which is like that's representative day of the dead the the sugar skull the skull um, painted and, um, and so there's a lot of um, up there the blanket or the kind of like the sheet that's on there that was actually my that's my grandmother's and it's from um, Puebla which is a small town in Mexico um, and so it's, it's supposed to be very colorful. It's supposed to bring life back. You make a path with the marigolds. If you've ever seen Coco, the movie, they, that's their path to walk on back into earth, back through the ofrendas. Um, so it's supposed to be very, very colorful. But honestly, your ofrenda can be whatever you want it to be. Recuérdame. It's been really fun having it up and really seeing people taking kind of like some a pause and really reflecting on the loved ones and even kids have like drawn had pictures of their old dogs that have passed away or pets and that warms my heart because i love my dog <laughs> we have monty who is my partner's dog harley who is my other dog i have like my grandfather up there my grandmother my godmother um a lot of our friends that have passed in our community you know um patrick hannah um, yeah, and you still get to see their pictures and, you know, remember the good times and conversations you had with them. And, and I think that's the meaning behind the ofrenda. You remember those times with them. We miss them, we love them, but we'll never forget them. With a thick blanket of snow, it's hard to not turn your sights to ski season. And this year, after a COVID-induced hiatus, an iconic Telluride event is back. It's the KOTO Ski Swap. This has been a long-standing event. I think a much-loved, well-loved event in the community. And it's an it's a event to bring the community together to get excited about the upcoming ski season and just help move some inventory and move some gear that's stuck in your you know back shed or upstairs closet whatever it is and it's a great way to raise money for Kodo. That's Lolly Lavarkum Ski Swap Coordinator. We've got some awesome vendors this year um, some coming from Durango some local vendors including Jagged Edge, Telluride Adaptive has some gear they're bringing so we're super excited and grateful to have those vendors and we also are hoping to get lots and lots of individual sellers in there so that you can come and get some bargains before um, the ski season. According to Lavercom, the world's your oyster when it comes to gear possibilities at the swap. We've got skis, boots, snowboards. We've got a lot of um, Nordic gear coming, which is really awesome to hear about. Lavercom notes there's always something good to find. She knows from experience. Honestly, I I go through the apparel because I want to find that that gold golden piece. I think I got like a I'm a snowboarder. I probably shouldn't say that on Kona, but um, I got like a old ski awesome jacket that definitely was from probably the 80s or something and there's some you're gonna find some primo stuff in there patrick latcham knows there's always a bargain as well my like first pair of puskies i got at the ski swap and i it's just like there's nostalgia to it i've missed it i'm so stoked to have it and it's, it's gonna be awesome 
Latcham is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Telluride Ski Resort. In addition to KOTO Ski Swap, Telski will have a local pass sale. Pass sale is going to kick off at the Oak Street office from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Friday, November 11th. So anyone who's in town, all of our local community can go in there and take advantage of our of our discounted local pricing. Um, and then as we go into Saturday, um, those discounted passes are going to continue, um, and they'll be available from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. that Saturday, November 12th. And a rail jam. Our park crew is putting it all together. We're going to have a lot of snowmaking going on there prior, and in addition to this recent snow, which is certainly a help. Um, and so our park crew will be putting up a couple of features. We'll have music with DJ Squoos, some care giveaways with our sponsors, um, anyone can can go up and join. They just got to sign a waiver. There's no entry to 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 be a part of the free ride jam. So you can go in there and hit the features at the jumps if you want to. Lavercom and Latram agree. The weekend is the perfect way to get in the winter mindset. We're gonna see people riding skis and snowboards on snow. We're gonna have you know the ability to get your pass at a discounted rate. Get your lock in your gear. So it really kind of changes that lens if you're not already in it. Just thinking about winter and getting stoked for the upcoming season and um so yeah really excited to see it back and so we can get everyone together and, and get in the right mindset for winter it's always been a successful event for Kodo and for the community and for skiers and and getting hyped for the ski season so i just hope that people show up and are excited and find some really good gear the KOTO Ski Swap will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library Garage on Saturday, November 12th. Drop-off begins on the 11th, but tags are available for pickup now. Just stop by the Purple House on Pine. In the printmaking tradition, there are dozens and dozens of ways to transfer an image onto another surface, usually paper or fabric. One of those methods is called breakdown screen printing, a technique which Telluride resident Kathy Green teaches at the AHA School for the Arts once or twice a year. She's been offering the class for roughly a decade. With a report breaking down the process, KOTO's Gavin McGough has more. Within three years of taking classes at the AHA School, the student had already become the teacher. The art school was founded in 1990, and by 1993, printmaker and textile artist Kathy Green was already offering classes. In the 20 years since, Green has become a stalwart of the local art scene. This fall, Green is teaching a 16-day intensive on breakdown screen printing. At the AHA school, she explains the process. Over here, on, she has a series of screens for doing a great big tablecloth. So these are white lines, but then as you pull more, the color in the line starts to come out. So that's why it's called breakdown or deconstructing screen printing. Green is pointing to fabrics which have been built up with many layers of dye. The process goes like this. A colored gel is used to paint over a screen. The gel then dries. When ink is applied to the screen, it seeps through and colors the fabric underneath. As the screen is used more and more, the colored gel begins to break down, and it too starts to leave its mark on the fabric. The result is thus progressive and somewhat unpredictable, building and morphing over time. 
Student Amy Jean Babel says that element of surprise is what keeps her coming back. But Catchy, don't you think the best part of this for me anyway is the experimentation and you never quite know how it's going to turn out so every time it's sort of a surprise. So she had a screen that was, was all squiggles and black. And so then when she turned it over and started printing with clear, the black started dissolving. Dissolving, and that's what you get the And it looks a lot like rocks. I mean, we think of this kind of design as rocks. I think of it as sort of nerve endings. Okay, well, she likes likes thinking of inside the human body body and science and space, and I think of all the nature scenes that could be. Yeah. The print room at AHA is absolutely filled with paper, clothing, cloth, dish towels, screens, and pots of colored dye in upcycled yogurt containers. Looking around, Green says that the process is not about control, but freedom, productivity, and experimentation. I've done a little bit of wood block carving as a child, and then um, lino block stuff as an adult, but not much. Um, but you carve and you carve and you make it all perfect. We're just like squirting the dye on, letting it dry overnight. You make four screens, you let them die. You print the screens you made from the day before. So you can make a lot of stuff. You can direct print. You can do a lot of, uh, we can work with stencils. Meg, where's your owl? Get out an owl. Many in the class are making finished products, a tablecloth or an art book or a series of dish towels to give away as gifts. Green says that the dyed fabric also becomes a medium of its own, which can then be made into quilts, clothing, or sold to other makers. When I, we say we made the fabric, we did not spin it, we did not you know, harvest the wool or <laughs> raise the moss for silk or whatever. We acquired the fabric, usually from Asia, and then we dyed it, and then we kind of feel like it's our own because it's different. Green says that practicing art is a way of approaching the world and of surviving its difficulties. Thinking of creativity, she remembers her late husband, Chuck Kroger. It can push out the world affairs that are all kind of grim right now. It can push out your own struggles with emotional and mental health because suddenly you see something positive and can feel more positive about yourself. And I certainly knew that after Chuck Kroger died and I was coming home, that I was coming home to art. And that was very important to me, and I knew that was what was going to bring me through building a life where Chuck was not physically present anymore. The room is full of wild color and is brightened by the sharp sunlight of early winter passing in the day outside. Surrounded by her students, Green says that those pursuing creativity can find it wherever they are and with whatever materials they have about them. Yeah, it can be really playful. You don't have to do something that makes this big of a mess and requires a giant room and all this equipment. This is playful. This is playful, but this is playful. But you can be playful just at your kitchen table and color with markers and make a lot of note cards. Um, You can put aside some of your your struggles. In the quantity and variety of prints all over the room, that sense of play is pervasive, even when it comes about through dedicated and serious work. There is no shortage of wilderness and natural beauty in San Miguel County. Now lawmakers are trying to protect more of that land as a national conservation area. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett introduced legislation to designate a portion of the Dolores River corridor spanning from below McPhee Dam to bedrock as protected. 
Next week, a number of organizations, including Sheet Mountain Alliance and the San Miguel Watershed Coalition, are hosting a Dolores River Happy Hour to share more information about the legislation and what it could mean for the river. The Dolores River Happy Hour will take place at the Telluride Brewing Company in Lawson on Thursday, November 10th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. In less than a week, Colorado voters will likely have a better idea of who's representing them in Congress and on the local level, and the answer to a number of statewide ballot measures. As we close in on Election Day, over 850,000 Coloradans have already submitted their ballots. The majority of ballots returned so far have been unaffiliated voters, at roughly 37%, then Democrats at 33%, finally Republican voters at 29%. The majority of voters have come from Jefferson County. As of Thursday, 1,635 San Miguel County voters had submitted their ballots. Early voting is available in San Miguel County at the San Miguel County Annex on Main Street in Telluride. Hours are Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. On Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., there's a 24-hour ballot drop box at the Miramonte Building in Telluride and the Glockson Building in Norwood on Election Day. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the San Miguel County Annex in Telluride and at Norwood Town Hall. Colorado is getting $500 million from the federal government to address contaminated drinking water. The funding will be distributed over a five-year period and will be used to replace lead water pipes across the state. It will also go towards removing so-called forever chemicals, which come from household and industry products like nonstick cookware and firefighting foam. Also known as PFAS chemicals, they can cause increased rates of cancer, infertility, and developmental problems. The funding mainly comes from the Federal Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which will be distributed through the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Voters in Colorado who speak a language other than English have more options this election. Recent legislation means voters can access translation services through a hotline. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGN News, Rosanna Longo-Better has more. Emma Piller is the Voter Services Director with the League of Women Voters of Boulder County. That's one of the organizations doing outreach to educate voters on language assistance that is now available in Colorado. Uh, In 2021, uh, the state legislature was able to pass a bill that requires our Secretary of State to provide a language assistant hotline so that if voters have another preferred language other than English, they're able to get their ballot translated uh, from the comfort of their home um, and be able to access these language and translation resources. How can people access this hotline? You can call into the hotline on Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. through 5 p.m. And then there's also extended hours um, the day before the election, so Monday, November 7th, and the day of the election, November 8th. Uh, The hotline will be available from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. People can also go in person to their local polling site, and they will have a trained election judges where people can ask a request that we call into the translation hotline for them and they get their ballot translated. People needing language support for their ballot can call the hotline at 303 
860-6970, or they can go in person to a voting center and request help from an election worker. For KGNU, I am Rosana Longobetter. Over the summer, the invasive Japanese beetle was detected in Grand Junction. The adult beetle feeds on more than 300 species of plants, including those that are a major part of the Western Slope's agricultural economy, such as sweet corn, peaches, and grapes. The invasive insect already plagues some communities on the Front Range. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF's Laura Palmasano speaks with Rich Guggenheim, Plant Health Certification Program Manager for the Colorado Department of Agriculture. What is the Japanese beetle and why is it such a threat to plants and crops? Japanese beetle is an invasive insect that actually comes from Japan and it's been in the United States for quite a while and we've had it in Colorado since the late 1990s. And the reason it's such a threat is because it has a wide host range, meaning that it can feed on many different types of plants. What does the Japanese beetle look like and how are some ways people can identify it? The Japanese beetle is about anywhere from a quarter of an inch to a half an inch in size as, as an adult. It's got green wings and it's kind of an iridescent green, so it's very It's a very pretty insect, actually, if you've ever seen it. It's just unfortunate that it's so destructive. And as a larvae, you might see in your yard as a little C-shaped milky white grub. And probably what you're going to notice first is that your lawn is dying or you're going to have skunks, raccoons, or birds feeding on your lawn because they're trying to get to those grubs. Japanese beetles are already a problem in some front range communities. Where are they and what kind of problems are they causing? We have Japanese beetle primarily in the 12 front range counties. They range from Pueblo all the way up to Fort Collins in Larimer County. And in between, we have large populations of them. They're destructive to the urban environment because they are primarily feed in a grub stage at the roots of grass, your Kentucky bluegrass. And they need that Kentucky bluegrass, that grass in that wet soil, that moist soil that we typically associate with the lawns in order to survive as a larvae. And then as adults, they emerge and they become a nuisance because they will fly around you and they're pretty large. The other problem is they're destructive to the urban landscape plants. So they'll feed on your roses, they'll feed on your trees, they'll feed on everything in your garden. And so they're a bit of a problem here. And that is why we try to control them in our garden. And you'll hear a lot of frustrated gardeners talking about them in the summertime. Over the summer, Japanese beetles were detected in Grand Junction. Why is this such a concern? They were discovered this July in a trap that we have set up at one of our local nurseries. And it's a concern because not only is it destructive to turf and our ornamental landscapes, but it is highly destructive to our production agriculture over there as well. It will be devastating to our peaches and our wine grapes that we grow over in Grand Junction area, as well as the apples and the pears and people's home gardens. It can also be detrimental to our corn and things that we grow over there on the Western Slope. So we really want to protect not only agriculture, but the tourism and the things that people come to Colorado for. What's being done to help stop the spread of the Japanese beetle on the Western Slope? Colorado has an internal quarantine that prevents 
the transportation and movement of nursery stock from the Front Range into other regions of Colorado. So that has been successful for about the last 20 years. And we have not, to this date, found any indication that the Japanese beetle made its way into Grand Junction via the commercial nursery trade. We do need the homeowners to be aware of this quarantine and buy their nursery stock locally. Don't buy it on the front range and bring it back across the mountain. And we also have in Grand Junction in Mesa County, the Upper Grand Valley Pest Control District, where if the beetle is in their area, there's the ability for them to be able to treat it. And we trap throughout the state to monitor so that we can have early detection. And early detection of Japanese beetle is going to increase our likelihood of successfully eradicating the pest in areas where it's not already established. So it's not established yet on the western slope? It's not. It's not been established anywhere outside the Front Range. And the good news is we only caught a few hundred Japanese beetle in the city of Grand Junction in an area that's a new subdivision. So we're trying to establish how it got there. But our primary concern right now is to try and figure out how big the population is and move quickly to eradicate it. And that's a partnership between Mesa County, the city of Grand Junction, Colorado Department of Agriculture, and Colorado State University Extension in the Tri-Rivers area. What can gardeners, farmers, homeowners do to be aware of this pest? Awareness, as you alluded to, is the most important thing, and that's where it's really important for homeowners to stay tuned to the local media and be in touch with their local extension office so that they're aware of what invasive pests are out there and keep them out of Colorado. And very important information for the homeowners, buy it where you're going to plant it. Don't buy it outside the area and bring it in. We have these quarantines in place to protect our environment and protect our agriculture. Be aware of what you're bringing in with you. It can move easily in vehicles. It can move on firewood. So don't bring in firewood from outside the area. Thank you for your time, Rich. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, and I appreciate your time. That was Rich Guggenheim with the Colorado Department of Agriculture. For KVNF, I'm Laura Palmisano. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with a low around 15 degrees. One to three inches of snow accumulation is possible. Friday, there's a 20% chance of snow showers with partly sunny skies and a high near 30 degrees. Friday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 15. Saturday, expect mostly sunny skies during the day and partly cloudy skies at night. The high is around 40 degrees with a low around 30. This has been the news for Thursday, November 3rd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.